Barnard's Professor of Jewish Studies in the Department of Religion at Barnard College. I've been eager for a long time uh, uh, to learn with her as I've read her works and been able to uh, benefit from her scholarship. She's the author of Execution and Invention, Death Penalty Discourse in Early Rabbinic and Christian Cultures. When we first planned on, on her flying out here, we were gonna interview on that topic. So hopefully we'll have a chance to, to engage more with that as well. And Defining Jewish Difference, from antiquity to the present, um, and animals and animality in the Babylonian Talmud. These are all amazing. And her era, her area of specialization is classical rabbinic literature. Today's topic is: Are pit bulls da really dangerous? Uh, are pit bulls really dangerous? Um, and reflections on rabbinic constructions of risk. What a fascinating topic! I know people are going to be trickling in as we're starting right on time. And um, while we'll only have a dozen or two dozen on, here on the Zoom today, we'll have thousands on the recording end where most of our participants engage. So with that, Professor Berkowitz, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. So I wanted to start by asking if anybody here has adopted or gotten a dog in the past year. And you can put your answers into the chat, Eddie, you have. Um, I don't know about anybody else. Um, so animal adoptions, I wish, yeah. Um, I have a pit bull, oh, that's great. Okay, good, you can speak to that experience. So animal adoptions have skyrocketed in the past year of the pandemic. People are at home more, people are looking for ways to get out. People are looking for connection and companionship that animals offer. Um, so I wanna share my screen because I actually had a dog before um, the pandemic began. And um, I'm just going to switch, there we go. And I wanted to show you my dog. His name's Bert. He's a Newfoundland. Um, he's big and fuzzy and he looks like a bear. He gets huge amounts of attention. Um, people's response to him is interesting. People assume he's just this big old teddy bear. So he can be very sweet. I, I want to give him that, but the reality is a lot more complicated. Bird has gotten into a lot of dog fights. He's sometimes aggressive towards people if they scare him some way, like skateboarders do. He'll bark and growl menacingly at them, which makes me feel terrible. Um, it's this disconnect between the reality and the perception that I want to delve into with you today. If Bert had lived in the late 1800s, he would have faced a very different reality. Newfoundlands were popular then as guard dogs. They were one of the first breeds to be registered by the American Kennel Club in 1886. They had a reputation for aggression. Newspapers featured dramatic stories of Newfoundlands attacking people there was in 1893, a Cincinnati paper story about a 14 year old boy who very unwisely kicked a Newfoundland and the dog responded by attacking the boy and killing him. But 
that Pitbull is the dog breed that's currently associated most with danger, not Newfoundland. Many cities have Pitbull bans. The entire UK banned Pitbulls back in 1991. Now, these sorts of breed targeting dog laws. Um, oh, yeah, AJ, that's interesting. I had totally forgotten about the Newfoundland, Newfoundland troll and Peter Pan. Um, the dog breed targeting uh, laws have not actually been effective, according to studies. Dog bites do not seem to decrease as a consequence of these breed-specific bans. And it's shown that actually education of dog owners, regulation, has shown to be a lot more um, effective, as well as cost-efficient, because of impounding um, pit bulls is quite expensive. Um, Breed-based discrimination also has racial overtones. There's an essay that I assign in my animal studies class at Barnard, and the title of it is Golden Retrievers are White, Pitbulls are Black, Chihuahuas are Hispanic. And the author looks at things like LL Bean ads that have Golden Retriever puppies or Taco Bell ads that feature Chihuahuas to show that our ideas about white, black, and brown people are shaped by associations with specific dog breeds. Um, and this phenomenon, I think, has really become famous recently in the ad that Raphael Warnock used in his Senate campaign, in which he portrays himself with a beagle. And um, I'm going to try to show you, I had a little technical difficulty before, here we go. We told uh, I just want to check, can people hear the ad? Were people able to hear that? Yes, good. Okay, here we go. We told them the smear ads were coming, and that's exactly what happened. You would think that Kelly Leffler might have something good to say about herself if she really wants to represent Georgia. Instead, she's trying to scare people by taking things I've said out of context from over 25 years of being a pastor. But I think Georgians will see her ads for what they are. Don't you? I'm Raphael Warnock, and we approve this message. Okay. I do not you told them the smear ad. Okay. Um, Okay, um, an article on the website 538 commented about this ad, quote, Warnock's Beagle can be thought of as trying to communicate a specific white friendly message to voters, something like, how can I be the scary black guy she's depicting with a dog like that? Warnock's dog ads may well be thought of as a dog whistle to voters who have lingering concerns about black political leadership. So that's from 538. I have to admit, I was somewhat crestfallen when I found out that that beagle isn't actually Warnock's dog. So I wanna start out by making three points about dog breeds and danger. 
for us to keep in mind as we dive into some classical rabbinic texts and study them together. So one, perceptions about animal danger are culturally constructed and shift over time. Two, these perceptions are related to our perceptions about human identity, such as race. Three, perceptions about animal danger often mask our own accountability in cohabiting with animals. To put it simply, it's easier to blame the dog than to blame ourselves when something goes wrong. So let's keep those ideas on deck as we dive into um, several rabbinic texts. So here's the plan. We'll first look at this Mishnah that deals directly with the problem of animal danger. And I'm going to suggest to you that there's a discourse of animal danger in this Mishnah comparable to the con contemporary discourses about pit bulls and Newfoundlands that I've started with. Then we'll turn to a story in the Talmud about dangerous animals. And I'm going to argue about that story that is trying to get us to think critically about these discourses of danger and to take more accountability. What's really going on when we decide that something or someone is dangerous? The story invites us to think hard about that question. So our first stop is this Mishnah um, from Tractate Bhavakama, chapter one, Mishnah four. There are five innocents, the Hebrew is Tom, and five attested, the Hebrew is Mulat. An animal is not attested with respect to goring, butting, biting, squatting, or kicking. The tooth is attested with respect to eating all that is appropriate to it. The foot is attested with respect to smashing as it walks. The attested ox, the ox who causes damage in the domain of the one damaged, and the human. The wolf, the lion, the bear, the leopard, the panther, the serpent, these are attested. Rabbi Elazar says when they're domesticated in the Hebrew there has been made tarboot, they're not attested. And the serpent is always attested. What is there between innocent and attested? Only that the innocent pays half of the damage and from its own body, while the attested pays full damage from the upper story. So let me first give you an overview of the Mishnah. It's a second, third century Jewish legal collection composed in Hebrew in Roman Palestine. This particular Mishnah features animal tort law. The Mishnah distinguishes between cases in which an animal owner has to pay full compensation for damages caused by their animal and between cases in which the owner need pay only half compensation. And in the half compensation cases, the owner doesn't have to dip into their savings, but they pay only out of the value of the offending animal. So I'm gonna take you through this Mishnah step by step. I realize it's a difficult mission. It doesn't make much sense, just kind of out of context. The Mishnah starts with numbered lists, which Mishnah chapters often do. It says there are five tums, that's the innocent source of damage, and five muads. So what exactly do tum and muad mean? I translated them, as you see, as innocent and attested sources of damage. 
but these words are like impossible to translate. And I challenge you to open up different translations of the Mishnah and you're gonna see translators struggling with these terms. So let's delve into them um, to see how they illuminate the Mishnah's discourse of animal danger. So first question I wanna pose, is the Mishnah getting these terms from the Bible, from the Torah? Now the answer to that question is sort of. Exodus 21 and 22, on which much of the Mishnah's animal torts are based, don't use these terms. But Exodus 21 and 29 does use the past tense of Muad. It's Huad, which JPS, Jewish Publication Society, translates as worn. So I want us to look at this passage and um, see. Oh, that was just the. Um, Hebrew of the mission we looked at in case we wanted to refer back to it. And so that we could have a chance to look at some cool uh, animal pictures. Okay, so when an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox is not to be punished. If, however, that ox has been in the habit of goring and its owner, though warned, has failed to guard it and it kills a man or a woman. The ox shall be stoned and its owner too shall be put to death. When a man's ox injures his neighbor's ox and it dies, they shall sell the live ox and divide its price. They shall also divide the dead animal. If however, it is known that the ox was in the habit of goring and its owner has failed to guard it, he must restore ox for ox but shall keep the dead animal. So the Exodus passage deals basically with two cases, an ox who kills a person and an ox who kills another ox. So, okay, let's kind of engage in an imaginative exercise. You live in ancient Israel. You're lucky enough to have an ox. What happens to you, the ox owner? Please put your answer in the chat. If God forbid, your ox suddenly gores a person to death. Good, the ox gets stoned. That's what happens to the ox, which is fascinating that the ox essentially gets punished and in the book I wrote about animals in the Talmud, I actually have a whole chapter on this idea of animal punishment and there's actually a trial. So that's a really fascinating component of this law. What happens to the animal owner? What, here, if you look at um, just verse 28, what does it say happens with the um, animal owner? Yeah, so thanks, Eddie, again. He's not liable unless there was this warning. Very good. And um, what happens if your ox gores another ox? And you didn't have a warning. It just happens out of the blue.
This is verse 35. Anyone? Should I call on people the way I do in my classrooms? Um, what happens in verse 35? What does it say? If the ox, if your ox um, gores another ox to death, what do you do? Anyone? In my classrooms, I'll tend to just wait it out. But because we're, we're I, you sell it. Thanks, AJ. Um, Eddie, you sell the live ox and split the funds. Yeah, it's basically kind of a complex form of splitting the cost of the damages. Thank you. So, okay. But if someone told you your ox has a tendency to be aggressive, as you said, if it's in the case of your ox killing a person, you actually um, get the death penalty. What about if it's the case, if you already knew your ox had these bad habits and then your ox gores another ox? Um, it's kind of a complicated scenario there in, in verse 36, what happens? It's kind of a, a strange, I mean, the Talmud has lots of discussion of how, how exactly this works out. Um, what does it say? It says he must restore ox for ox. So you basically have to pay in full, but you get to keep the um, the victim. So, which I guess you know makes it a little less um, expensive as a as a um, compensation burden. Okay, so that's Exodus, the biblical backdrop for our Mishnah. And my question is then, how is the Mishnah relating back to this material? And I want to look at some subtle but noticeable shifts first. Um, and actually, the thing I really want to focus on, which I find fascinating, is how the word huad in Exodus, the person's warned in the Mishnah, turns into this formal abstract term. And then the Mishnah partners the term muad with this antonym term tongue that the Mishnah just makes up. And those two terms together refer not to whether an owner has been warned about whether they've got a bad ox or not, but to whether an animal is exhibiting normal or abnormal behavior. So let me explain how this plays out. Okay, so back to our text. An animal is not attested as source of damage with respect to goring, budding, biting, spotting, picking. So first we can just observe, we're not talking about an ox as Exodus, Exodus is. We're talking about a generic animal, a behemoth, which by the way actually means mute, which is sort of interesting. But the Mishnah applies the goring ox passage to other domesticated animals and also other kinds of aggression. It's not just goring, it's also these other kinds of damaging behaviors. When the Mishnah declares this behemoth to be unattested or not muad, what the Mishnah is, is calling tam for these activities, what it's basically saying is this is not normal behavior. 
Now, this is essentially what Exodus was saying, too, that if the owner can't predict that animal's behavior, then he's less liable for the damage that the animal causes. But in Exodus, the predictability hinges on this warning, on this particular information that an owner either does or doesn't receive. But for the Mishnah, it hinges on this scheme of behavioral norms that's being produced. So I wanted to see how these norms are unfolding in the Mishnah. So here's another exercise for you. You've traveled in time from ancient Israel to Roman Palestine, and you are a follower of this strange little movement called the rabbis. So you've got an ox. They kick a person and injure them. What's your liability? Half liability or full liability? You have a 50-50 chance of getting it right. Half. Good. Good, good, good. Lauren. Excellent. Yes, half, because you couldn't have anticipated it. This is totally abnormal behavior. The average ox doesn't go around kicking people, so you are not a cause. Now, the mission then contrasts this abnormal, aggressive behavior, that's the tummy, with an animal's normal behavior, and that's the muadi. So let's start with the first two. The tooth is, respect, is uh, attested with respect to eating what is appropriate to it. The foot is attested with respect to smashing it as it walks. And I have to tell you, as someone who has taught this material, it gets very weird because the terms, like the tooth and the foot basically become names for tort categories. And students start talking about tooth and foot as though they're just tort categories and you like forget that they're actually body parts. But let's talk about what these body parts are supposed to be telling us. Um, what we're finding out here is that the Misha is using the word mu'ad to refer to when animals are exhibiting non-aggressive behavior, humdrum walking and eating. As the mission will go on to explain, an animal can be expected to eat fruits and vegetables that appear in front of them or to break little objects that are lying in its path. So here's my next question posed to you. You're walking around with your cow. Your cow starts munching on a bag of apples that's you know, left unattended. Was it your job to have prevented this? Do you need to pay full compensation for those apples? Okay, again, 50-50 chance of getting this right. You either do or don't. So it's complicated. The answer actually is yes, you are responsible. Whether you think that's fair or not, you're responsible because it was a muad activity. You should have anticipated it. Good, Abraham. And therefore, because you should have anticipated it, you should have done something to prevent it. And you have to fully compensate the apple owner. So this takes us to number three on the Mu'ad list, which is oddly redundant. The shore Mu'ad is Mu'ad. The attested ox is attested. This, this is the exodus case, where the owner has been informed of the behavior. And this is the case where for an individual ox, the abnormal has actually become the normal. 
they've shown themselves to typically act atypically. And that's really the case Exodus had in mind, is this ox whose owner has been warned about him. And you can see that it's kind of thinking about Exodus here, because it goes back to the language of ox, as opposed to like the general language of behemoth or animal. Okay, I'm gonna skip four and five on the list. The, the damage on private domain and the human being. Um, and I'm gonna talk about this extra list that appears. So the wolf, the lion, the bear, the leopard, the panther, the serpent, these are attested. Rabbi Eliezer said when they're trained, they're not attested. And the serpent is always attested. So attested is not the word you want here. What is this really talking about? We're talking about dangerous animals, unlike the domesticated animal for whom aggressive behavior is considered abnormal. For these species, aggressive behavior is declared normal. And this is really the species of the animal danger discourse with which I began. So let's delve into this a little. What are the legal consequences of an animal making it onto the danger list? So here's my quiz for you now. What if you're walking around with your pet snake and the snake bites someone? Would you be responsible for full medical bills to that person? For getting insurance companies and that kind of stuff. Would you be uh, fully or half responsible for that snake bite? Absolutely, Lauren, good. That snake is likely to bite. Um, any owner of these muad species has to pay full damages, whether his animal has ever attacked anybody before or not. There's one exception. What's the exception? Anybody wanna try? It's Rabbi Eliezer's intervention here. The exception is anybody? Which makes sense, pet lion. Yeah, if they've, I mean, it's interesting. It's, it's if the animal like a lion or any of the other ones good has have been trained, they're beneath her boot, in which case they no longer fall into the dangerous list. But notice, and that's the reason I asked about the snake, is they say the snake is always dangerous. You can't train a snake. Yeah, AJ, I don't, I don't know. I think there are some things you can uh, fully train a wild animal. Lauren, again, the assumption here, at least Rabbi Eliezer's assumption, is that you can't, but that you can't ever fully train a snake which is not so surprising given the bad rap snakes get in the Bible. And, you know, of course that continues into the present day. Just watch, you know, any Harry Potter movie, snakes, there's good animals and there's bad animals and snakes are the worst of the animals. So, okay, before we leave this Mishnah, I wanna to return to one of the muads I skipped. Walking your pet polar bear. I love the comments here. I love polar bears too. Um, I want if we skip the Adam, the human being. 
Now, it's interesting that if you look at this Mishnah, the human is actually a connective between the first kind of hodgepodge list of muads and the second list of muads that are the dangerous species. And I want to raise the question, is the human, are we supposed to see them more as similar to like the benign cow who's just like eating grass on the first list or the dangerous wolf and lion on the second list? But I think either way, it's kind of fascinating that the human is presented as just another species that walks around doing damage that you have to watch out for. So I'm going to get back to this question at the very end today, which is where does the human being fit into the broader schemes of animal species? So I'm going to summarize and move on. According to this Mishnah, Domesticated animals are normally not aggressive on the level of species, but individually they might be. Some animal species are inherently aggressive, but individually actually they may not be if they're trained. Some animal species are incorrigibly aggressive, like the snake, and possibly the human being. Now, this is all an exercise in defining torts liability but it's also more than that, and I don't want us to miss the more. This mission is creating a discourse about animal danger, and it's doing so by working creatively with the Bible. The Bible doesn't really have this discourse. And I also want to note that this discourse here isn't as simple as it seems. It organizes animals into this binary of domesticated and wild, but it keeps complicating that binary. It shows domesticated animals like constantly walking around, damaging stuff. It shows some domesticated animals cause, um, being unpredictably aggressive. It shows dangerous animals that maybe aren't always as dangerous as they might initially seem, like when they're trained. And that's really where I'm headed today, is that our ideas about danger start to break down when we scrutinize them. And that scrutiny is healthy. And that scrutiny is exactly what the Talmudic story offers. So I want to turn to that story. I'm going to give you a little bit of the Mishnaic background to that story. Um, I'll try to do this fast because I want to have time for the story. So, so far, we've been dealing with what rabbinic texts call Behemagasa which is large domesticated animals, like the cow. This mission deals with what it calls behemadaka, which are smaller domesticated animals. Usually it refers to sheep and goats, as you're about to see. Okay, so this is Babakama 7-7. What may not raise small cattle, sheep and goats in the land of Israel, but what may in Syria and the wilderness of the land of Israel, one may not raise chickens in Jerusalem because of the sacrifices and priests in the land of Israel because of the pure things. An Israelite may not raise pigs anywhere. A person may not raise a dog unless he's tied up by a chain. One may not set traps for pigeons unless it's 30 reefs. I think that's like four miles from the inhabited area. So what we get here is a discussion of sheep, goats, chickens, pigs, dogs, and pigeons. So you are a Jew living in Jerusalem in the period of Roman Palestine. I pose the question to you, 
what animals are you allowed to have on your farm? And remember, I said Jerusalem because geography matters. No chickens. Good. What can you have? No sheep, no goats. Definitely no pigs. What's left? Ah, Lauren, awesome. I'm getting to that. The one animal who's missing is actually the cat. So I want to get to the cats. But in the meantime, I just wanted to mention this prohibition on sheep and goats has really flummoxed scholars because it's hard to imagine that in Roman Palestine, people were not raising sheep and goats for their wool, for their milk, for their meat. Um, and there's a lot of speculation about why they would have made this prohibition. Um, but it's pretty clear from rabbinic texts that nobody paid attention to this prohibition. And actually other rabbinic texts are not as strict about this. So anyway, that's just kind of a side point. Yes, cats are actually missing from this Mishnah, but they are not missing from the Talmud. So we're going to turn to talk about cats. And I feel I should give a trigger warning for cat lovers. So, I, you know, I did that. So here's the story in the Talmud that I wanted us to look at. In the episode from Baba Kama, three rabbis, Rav Shmuel and Rav Asi, are all trying to enter the house of a baby boy whose birth is being celebrated. So here's the story. Rav Shmuel and Rav Asi happened to come to the house of a week of the sun, or some say it was the house of a salvation of the sun. Rav would not enter before Shmuel, Shmuel would not enter before Rav Asi, and Rav Asi would not enter before Rav. They said, who will go behind? Shmuel should go behind, and Rav and Rav Asi should go. But Rav and Rav Asi should have gone behind. Rav was only making a gesture on Shmuel's behalf because of the incident where he cursed him. Rav took it upon himself. In the meanwhile, a cat came and mutilated the hand of the child. Rav went out and expounded, it is permitted to kill a cat and forbidden to raise it. Theft is not applied to it, nor does the obligation to return a lost item to its owner. So um, I, I just wanted to put the chat back up. I had lost it for a second. Okay, great. Um, Okay, so let me lay out six elements to the story. First, Rav Shmuel and Rav Azi arrive at the celebration of a baby boy. Two, they can't decide who should enter first. Three, they finally decide who should hang back and who should proceed. The narrator of the story interrupts the story to ask this question about the decision and to give some background. A cat bites the hand of the child being celebrated and severely injures him. And then Rav issues this new um, legislation about cats. Sorry, I'm just like trying to get the chat up here. 
again. Excellent. Oh, Lauren, that's awesome. I, do, I totally think that's where the story's going is the cat isn't guilty. So I think you'll be pleased. Okay. Um, there are a number of strange things happening in this story. Let me take you through it. Try to account for the elements. Um, the story begins with this irrelevancy. Three rabbis are going to a celebration for a baby boy. The story wavers over just what kind of celebration is it? Is it a beta ben? Is it a circumcision? My response is like, who cares? And I like to read Talmudic stories the way I read literature. So I want to suggest in that vein that the story dwells on this seemingly unimportant detail in order to focus us, the story audience, on the baby boy and to contrast our focus on the baby boy with the main character's negligence regarding the boy. These main characters, the three rabbis, are focused instead on their hierarchical relationships with each other, the question of which one deserves to enter the celebration first. So let's figure out what's going on with that situation. According to the rules of the rabbinate, no rabbi should enter a room before a rabbi of greater honor. In this case, the rules bring them to this comic standstill. Rav refuses to enter before Shmuel. Shmuel refuses to enter before Rav Asi. Rav Asi refuses to enter before Rav, his teacher, and nobody can move. Realizing the predicament in which they find themselves, the three rabbis ask each other, Who's gonna hang back? So the rabbis determined that Shmuel should defer to the others, but the editorial voice or the narrator of the story says, wait a minute, why Shmuel shouldn't, um, it should have been Rav or Rav Azi that went behind. And then we find out that Rav had been compensating for this prior incident, which is actually narrated elsewhere in the Talmud, where Rav had cursed Shmuel. And what happened is Rav had gotten a terrible stomach ache and Shmuel cures Rav by giving him all this food and not letting him go to the bathroom, which I guess was an ancient cure that they would use, which Rav was not very happy about having used on him. So he cursed Shmuel and then felt bad about it. And in this story, we're finding out that's why he wants to defer to Shmuel to kind of make it up to Shmuel. But technically, it should have been Rob because of his greater honor who should have gone first. So once again, I think we really should be asking, what's the rhetorical function of this whole tangent? Um, as before, I think it's designed to alert us to an important theme we're going to encounter in the story. And I think here is that Rob's fierce anger um, and his lack of restraint in expressing it is something we're going to see. And it also alerts us to kind of the dark side of rabbinic honor, which is that rabbis can also be very hostile to each other, curse each other, get very angry with each other. Um, so anyway, these three Babylonian rabbis are so preoccupied with the question of their honor and we can imagine the gathered family and guests were too, that this cat attacks the baby, who's the very object of celebration. And you can only imagine how shocking and terrible this incident would have been. What's the rabbinic response? 
Well, Rob comes comes down very hard on cats. He emerges from the encounter with this legislation that permits someone to kill a cat, to steal a cat, that prohibits beating cats. And I think it's worth considering legislative alternatives that Rob might have chosen. Like if you were deciding how to respond to this situation, what would you do? Um, I know for me that rather than saying you can go around killing cats, probably I would have first said, well, how about not leaving babies lying around when there's a cat there? So, or, you know, better security in people's houses. So this is where cat lovers like Lauren should um, tune back in because I think the Talmud actually agrees with me and is trying to lead us to precisely this conclusion that discourses of the animal danger are a strategy that we human beings use for our purposes. In this case, the strategy deflects blame from the rabbis who were paralyzed with their preoccupation with their micro power struggles. And Rob's legislation kind of shifts attention away from the rabbi's impotence by generating this moral panic around the figure of the cat. Um, and I think that editorial treatments, which I'll just very briefly take you through, really kind of emphasizes this point. So the next part of the Gemara of the Talmudic commentary asks, like, why did Rav need to state quite as many legislations as he did? And I think in this section, the Gemara is trying to emphasize the kind of over-enthusiasm and zeal, like a sort of frightening zeal of Rav that he expresses in these legislations. And then there's actually more to be said. The Talmud goes on to um, what you're going to find out is that for the Talmud, it's actually um, white cats that are bad luck, not black cats. So um, in this next section, um, an early rabbinic tradition attributed to Shimon ben Elazar says it's perfectly fine to raise cats. Cats are great. You know, they get rid of mice in your home. They keep it clean. Nothing wrong with cats. And then the Gemara says, well, why is Rav so down on cats if we have this early authoritative tradition that likes cats? So then the Talmud does this standard thing the Talmud likes to do, which is Nukimta, which is to say, well, it must be that the teaching is referring to one kind of cat and Rav was referring to another kind of cat. So we say Rav was referring to white cats, the teaching that's permissive was referring to black cats. But the picture of good and black cats, black versus white, gets murky really quickly. If you follow along, they start asking, well, actually the cat in Rob's story was really a black cat. So maybe black cats aren't actually that um, good. And then the Gemara starts playing with various permutations of ancestry, saying, well, the cat in the Rob story was actually black, but it was black, the offspring of a white, so it just looked white. And then we're, we're told in the next turn of the dialectic, as you can see, it's quite complex, that Ravina had asked a question, 
and, and um, it can't it can't really be that the story of of Rob's cat was black, the offspring was white. So we conclude that um, Ravina's question was really about a black cat born of a white cat who was born of a black cat. And if you're not keeping track, don't worry. I think you're kind of not supposed to keep track, to be honest. We, the Gemara finally concludes that the story of Rav involves a black cat born of a white cat who was in turn born of a white cat. And that's the kind you have to watch out for. That's kind of, you know, the Talmud's famous for this kind of crazy stuff. But I think the point here is that, like, you need a pet DNA test to know what kind of cat you were dealing with. And the Talmud knows this. They obviously don't know about DNA tests. But what they're telling us is there's a fine line distinguishing safe animals from dangerous animals. And it's parodying the kind of black and white way that these discourses of danger try to see. So I want to go back now and wrap up that the idea to this idea that humans are just one more dangerous animal on the list. Because I think this Talmudic story presents the real danger as coming from people. And the Talmudic material is challenging whether it's really possible to tell which animal is dangerous and whether the real risk is even from the animal. And it suggests the real problem is human negligence and human avoidance of their own accountability. And just in my final minute, I wanna say that I wanna have some conclusions about danger and about animals. We're currently this past year engaged in some important, very new risk reflections risk and danger have been weighing on us in a couple really big ways. One is of course the pandemic, but the other is Black Lives Matter and racial justice activism. As a society, we're coming to reckon with how dangerous it is to be black in this country and how dangerous black people are perceived to be in our country. Talk about black and white cats. We've got a real problem with black and white people. So these two areas of risk, the pandemic and race, they intersect. We know the pandemic has hit black and brown people much harder, that Asians have been scapegoated for the pandemic. So we need to really think about who is perceived as dangerous um, and who is actually in danger and adjust our decision-making and be more self-aware. So finally, um, I'll, I'll take one more minute if it's okay. Um, I think we also have to look more carefully at the dangers we pose to animals. Which animals do we perceive as dangerous and why? What dangers are we posing to animals in the 21st century? And to rethink not just racial justice, but also species justice. And I wanted to just finally say something about animal studies and Jewish studies. You may know Isaac Bishevitz Singer was a famous vegetarian. Jonathan Safran Foer does a lot of animal activism, but there is an entire field of inquiry in the academy called critical animal studies. The French philosopher Jacques Derrida is a founding figure, so is Peter Singer. And Jewish studies scholars like myself are trying to bring our work together with animal studies. We now have Jewish animal studies work from Bible to medieval Jewish philosophy and um, pietism 
to modern Yiddish, Hebrew, and American literature. And um, Shmuley Yanklowitz has edited an amazing book on Jewish veganism, which I'm so proud to have contributed to. And I've tried to show you today a case study in rabbinics. So I'm going to leave it there and give us a little bit of time for questions. Thank you. Great, thank you so much, Professor Berkowitz. Such, this is so fascinating. And friends, we have 10 minutes to hear from some of your questions. So please don't hesitate to unmute yourself and jump right in. I'm gonna stop my screen share. As you can see, this has been a shy group, but we'll give them a moment. <laughs> That's okay, I'm shy too. <laughs> I, I relate. Plus it's, it's like that for you guys, it's like that post lunch kind of like, you know, brain buzz. <laughs> Hi, uh, obviously at some point, these laws no longer, no, no longer mattered. I mean, there's plenty of dogs in Yerushalayim. Um, and, you know, I, I guess the, at what point did these laws, I, I assume they were only agricultural? And the dog was considered not a pet, but a, I don't know, something to help with the sheep. But at, at one point, did these laws no longer become like a halakha? Yeah, well, there's, that's a great question. There's a fantastic book I like to recommend. It's called A Jew's Best Friend Dogs in, like Throughout Jewish History. Um, Maybe we could, I, I, I don't have a chance to look it up right now, but um, it takes you through the status of the dog, you know, from the Bible to right now. And so that's shifted a lot over time. One thing that I find fascinating since I study the period of late antiquity is it's clear from um, rabbinic literature that dogs were not pets, that there was no kind of emotional relationship to dogs. They were, I think cats, they saw as a little more useful. Um, I think dogs, especially in the Bible, it's, it's a pretty negative picture um, until you get to the book of Tobit, which is a um, kind of second temple period work where there's like a, a, a friend dog character. It's, it's really kind of cool. But um, dogs were associated, I think they, Dogs had an association with like eating blood, eating carrion. Um, yeah, interesting, Eddie, that cats are traced. Yeah, there's cats and dogs that are native to, to the land of Israel. And I didn't know cats' origins are, are traced back to Israel. So, you know, the cultural associations with dogs and cats have really changed a lot over time. And I'm really fascinated by contemporary relationships of Jews with dogs and cats where people sit shiva for dogs and cats and kind of adopt them into their family and use Jewish names for their dogs and cats. So there's a lot of interesting cultural transformations right now. And I know in Israel, there's a lot of cats. I, I don't know the dog situation as well in Israel, but I, I spent a summer in Tel Aviv a couple years ago. <laughs> Sorry, there, there uh, are a lot of dogs, and I mean, I live both in Brooklyn and in Yerushalayim, and it's actually a problem. I mean, people leave their dogs out 
and they don't properly take care of them, especially in Zippon, and they're running around in packs. Um, if you walk around the usual line, you see a lot of people are walking their pet dogs on the street, um, especially on the Tayelet. So I'm sorry to interrupt, but yeah, there's lots of dogs in the usual line. That's it. Yeah, so it's interesting to see how much things have changed from, from antiquity to now. And it sounds like the situation with cats is a lot kind of more dire in Israel than the situation with dogs. Like dogs have kind of become part of the family in a way maybe cats have less, but I, I'm not an expert on the situation there. I'm sure there's a lot of advocacy groups in Israel that you know try to help out with you know dogs and cats that need support bark mitzvahs. Yeah. I actually wrote about bark mitzvahs in my book about animals because I think, you know, I have really mixed feelings about things like bark mitzvahs because of the way they try to humanize dogs and try to turn them into people. And I feel like we should kind of respect the difference between us and other species, not try to make them human. Like I hate when people dress up dogs and cats and put glasses and on them and hats on them and clothes. But at the same time, I get it. It's a way to try to bring them into our families. And there's something to be said for creating that kind of intimacy and inclusion for animals, at least for, for pets. So, so I, I personally have a, a mixed feelings about that. Okay. Can I ask, this is not a question, it's more a comment. I have a reference that uh, uh, Jewish communities during medieval time preferred to have cats for protection of Torah parchment from mice. So it was very interesting. Interesting. So that's, yeah, so that's kind of in the tradition of, of what we see in the ancient text too, that cats were considered useful. And that was the case also in just the larger Roman culture in which the rabbis lived, at least the Palestinian rabbis, that, um, that cats were, you know, I, you don't see a whole lot of um, sentimental relationships around cats, but, but they found them to be useful members of the household. Um, and one of the things I find interesting, actually, in the Talmudic material that I studied with you is that in Babylonia, in a Zoroastrian context, cats, they had a dualistic um, way of dividing between good animals and evil animals. And cats were considered evil animals. And I think that's some of what's going on in the Talmudic material is you have some stuff from like the Greco-Roman world where cats had a more positive cultural association and then you've got Babylonian cultural context kind of clashing with it, where cats were thought of as evil. So there's kind of a culture clash happening in the Talmud between the Western rabbis and the Eastern rabbis and the different cultures each of them lived in. What about pigeons? Because they mentioned that is it considered domestic bird or? Definitely, definitely. It seems like pigeons were kind of part of the household. They had concerns, as you can see in that text, with people not stealing each other's pigeons. 
questions. They were worried about the kinds of conflicts. Like what, what people, I don't know that much about what pigeons were used for. Um, bless you. Um, yeah, why? Chris. What were the various reasons that people kept pigeons? Um, I should look into that. I don't know that much about pigeons. One thing, I, I heard a great um, news story recently, like maybe a couple years ago, about people who have relationships with pigeons and kind of have pet pigeons. And actually, I live in Park Slope in Brooklyn, and down the block, there's a pigeon who hangs out outside this one family's house and they named the pigeon Destiny, which I think is a funny name for a pigeon. And that pigeon is, its wings are not clipped. It's free to go, but it stays at that house and it just hangs out on the stoop all day. So I, pigeons actually, you know, seem to develop close relationships with people when people are open to it and when the pigeon's open to it. Amazing. This is a great place to pause. Thank you so much, Professor Berkowitz, for this amazing session. We look forward to more opportunities to learn with you. Thank you all Me so too. much for joining us. And um, we've got more, more classes coming up in the coming days. Have a great day, everyone. Thanks, Willie. Thanks, everyone. It was great to be here. Take care.